Well, this is actually what led me to raise the capital for our hedge fund. This was a time in 08, sort of throwing up their hands and giving up to do something different. First, a quick word from our best ever partner, PropStream. PropStream is an all-in-one platform that gives you the tools you need to reach more leads, book more meetings, and close more deals with less work. With PropStream, you can find vacant and off-market properties in seconds, nationwide or specific to any zip code. You can skip trace owner information, find cash buyers specific to an area, and find other investors to potentially partner with or fund your deals. PropStream provides you the comprehensive data and market insight you need to be at the top of your real estate game. PropStream also features state-of-the-art marketing tools that allow you to send out direct mail postcards and ringless voicemail. Even if you're not in real estate, PropStream can help you locate high net worth individuals to invest in your non-real estate business. Or if you are in real estate, then you can find them to invest in your real estate business. You can use this tool to find people who have millions of dollars in equity in their homes and you can reach out to them via email, telephone, or snail mail. This is the perfect real estate investing tool for wholesalers and real estate agents, real estate investors, and entrepreneurs. I love how easy the PropStream website is to use. With a few clicks, you can review comps in the area or estimate rehab costs prior to purchasing a property. Act now to take advantage of the plethora of properties that have and will continue to hit the market during this time. And best ever listeners, do you know we got something special for you? You're going to receive a free seven-day all-access trial to experience all the features this powerful tool has, and you'll experience it firsthand. Just go to your7dayfreetrial.com. That's Y-O-U-R, the number seven, dayfreetrial.com. Get started with this. Get your seven-day free trial and start growing your business even more so than you have been. Quick disclaimer, the views and opinions expressed in this podcast are provided for informational purposes only and should not be construed as an offer to buy or sell any securities or to make or consider any investment or course of action. For more information, go to bestevershow.com. Best ever listeners, how you doing? Welcome to the best real estate investing advice ever show. I'm Joe Fairless. This is the world's longest running daily real estate investing podcast where we only talk about the best advice ever. We don't get into any of that fluffy stuff with us today, John Stoy. How you doing, John? I'm doing great. I'm really so happy to have the opportunity to talk to you and share with the best ever listeners. Well, I'm happy as well, and I'm looking forward to our conversation a little bit about John. He spent 14 years on Wall Street from 1992 to 2006. He raised $300 million for a distressed hedge fund and has started and grown multiple businesses based in Atlanta, Georgia. With that being said, John, you want to give the best ever listeners a little bit more about your background and your current focus? Sure, sure. Well, right now, I've... I guess, re-entered the workforce after a little bit of time playing Mr. Mom. Super excited about that. And one of the reasons why I'm doing it is that I feel like I finally found my why. People talk about that a lot, but I realized that my why is taking care of people. And how do I do that? I've done it through the course of my career by helping companies more so than people. During the time I took off I helped raise my son. My wife works a lot. She's a physician. And I also helped be a caregiver for my dad. He was 96 when he passed away. So we're in a position where I feel like I've got a lot to offer for folks. I can help them to get a sense of where they fit in the world and more so where they fit with their careers 
and their goals, whether they be uh, entrepreneurship or existing within the corporate world. Okay. And so that's from a individual standpoint, and I'm sure that ties into our topic today, which is building, scaling, and growing a business. So how are those dots connected? And that is a fantastic question. It makes a lot of sense because when I speak to people, I get a lot of people calling me because they say, well, geez, you've done this before. I want to start a business. How do I do it? Before we get into that, what businesses have you started and what were the results of those businesses? Sure. I call myself an accidental entrepreneur, although I realized I was an entrepreneur from an early age, whether it be just having a paper route as a youngster or building up a cache of folks who I mowed lawns for. But after getting out of college, I went to work for Wall Street. And the thing I liked about it was that your income was uncapped. If you did well, you got paid well. And I really couldn't understand how people could go into careers where they knew what they were going to get paid, regardless of how they performed. And that, to me, drove my entrepreneurial mindset. The reason why I say it was accidental is I would say I was pushed into it by the financial crisis. I left a banking position along with the rest of my team to start a money manager. And we started in February of 2007, and we were out of business by Thanksgiving. Um, <laughs> this, this was not a good time, if you recall, yeah. uh, in the financial world. And I think that you have some experience with that, if I read your bio correctly. So February 2007, in terms of what do you mean by that? I have experience. Oh, your, 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 your experience in Lehman. No, I've never not related to Lehman. You might be thinking of someone else's bio. <laughs> never I, worked I, there. I, never... Bet I, I bet I am, Joe. And, and there I made my first uh, um, blunder <laughs> on your I, li I lived in New York City for 10 years, but I wasn't. That's, that's, was, that's I exactly wasn't, it. That's exactly I it. I wasn't working um, for any financial company. You were in advertising. My mistake. <laughs> Let me go back to that and, and say, we got out of there and looking back. So the reason why we were put out of business, and this is a key bit that, that I get into with folks, is learning to do the due diligence on any project you're getting involved with. We were supposed to have financing for a minimum of 24 months, but there was a key provision in, in the company's financing that basically scuttled that whole thing if a few key things did not happen. So surprise, they didn't What happen. were those things? Well, we had to do a deal by a certain time period. Otherwise, our bank wouldn't release the rest of the funds for us. And now what we were doing was we were buying CDOs. So not to get too much into the weeds on that, but suffice it to say, you could not purchase good assets at the time. So I was an asset manager. I said I wasn't willing to purchase these assets. And as a result, we couldn't close the deal. And the company had to go out of business. Mm -hmm. So this was something that where I trusted too much in someone else who had arranged for that type of financing. So if your financing was contingent on you all closing on a deal. Okay. And of course, that could happen in real estate as well. Yes, definitely. Financing provisions could be violated or not adhered to or loan covenants rather. So it's a little bit different in that world, though, because help me understand, why did your company need financing? Because isn't it just your salary? So if you just didn't get paid, then that's fine. So think of it like a construction loan. Okay. Um, we had to hit certain milestones in order for them to release the funding. I get that. 
we did not hit the milestone. Uh-huh. The funding, which would cover everything from salaries to the rent, would then not be released. Okay, got it. So how come you all just didn't take salaries and just work from home? Well, this is actually what led me to raise the capital for our hedge fund. Some people just threw up their hands. This was a time in 08 where mm-hmm. people in the finance industry and in my sector of it, structured finance, were sort of throwing up their hands and, and giving up to do something different or just taking some time off. A partner and I, we decided that we didn't want to do that. We wanted to do exactly as you say. Let's start our own business. We had somebody try to start the business for us and work for them, and that was unsuccessful. Let's do this on our own. So we were lucky enough to put together the project materials and raise $300 million for investing in these distressed assets all backed by the types of things that securities that sort of started the financial crisis, CDOs, subprime real estate, bonds, and such. So what we did was we created a whole system where we would be able to purchase those types of assets out of the banks who were under severe distress at the time. And we ended up getting these transactions take a long time to close. We were around for about a little over a year. In our second year, we were about to close on our first transaction would have been 120 million or so. And literally two weeks before the closing date, the banks were bailed out for the last time by the government. And we got a call from our banker that we were going to purchase from saying, well, we love you guys, but we don't need your money anymore. So that sort of ended that adventure. And that's what caused yeah, that's a punch. To, that is a punch in the gut. It, it it was a punch in the gut. I always tell people that you never know when the brass ring is going to come, and you never know when they're going to snatch it away from you. So I went from two weeks from being financially independent. How um, much would you have made personally? Uh, well, my partner liked to torture himself, so he tracked <laughs> he tracked that one and yeah he tracked that one investment, and contractually we would have each made seven or eight million. Oh, that's it. Yeah. So, so, yeah, so not that much, you know. (laughs) Oh, my. All right. Instead, you didn't make any money? I didn't make any money, except for our little salaries that we took during that period of time. So the $300 million was lined up specifically for the purpose of buying those assets. So so the $3 million that was lined up, was that already funded in Um, an escrow account or in some other account? No, it was pledged. It was pledged. Ah, okay. So then what'd you do? So then I got fed up and I said, this is now the second or third time that I've been put out of business in the finance world because of extraneous events. I want to control my own business. I don't want to deal with any of that. So how do I do that? I'm going to go ahead and start my own business that's completely different. So I looked into businesses that had low barriers to entry. Food business is a business with low barrier to entry and started making inquiries. I found actually a friend of mine who I'd gone to business school with had started a small business selling sushi. And that's how I came to run a sushi kitchen. And then he was looking to expand his business. So this is sort of one of the, we haven't gotten to it, but when I talk about the steps that I think you should look at when opening your own business, One of the steps is making a plan that includes for running the business as it exists and then running the business as you hope it might exist and seeing even 
what could be the issues if you have no growth, low growth, or even exponential growth. So I figured the only way that food business could have exponential growth is either franchising or wholesale. And Mm -hmm. I had no interest in running a restaurant because I did not want customers like that. And I didn't want to worry about hanging up a shingle and just hoping somebody would walk in the door. Whereas I knew I could go out and sell a product to Mm -hmm. folks. So I wanted to sell a product that I could sell to people all over the place or as many places as possible. And I didn't want to deal with retail. So I caused this sushi company to be turned into a wholesale supplier as opposed to a retail restaurant. And we bought, or I should say we leased a large catering kitchen here in Atlanta. We transformed the company's other locations into production facilities as well. And I went out and got businesses who had cafeterias, buildings Mm -hmm. who had cafeterias, and then universities, hospitals, folks like that to basically purchase our sushi and offer it as lunch fare. So we would make it overnight and package it and sell it to those folks at lunch. I bet that's so much more profitable than just a standalone restaurant. Well, that's it. You're in much better control of your margins. Oh, yeah. The stress level's down. You don't have to deal with random people complaining about stupid stuff. Correct. And I'm also a planner. I was basically a computer science major in college, Mm -hmm. along with finance. So I have a programming mindset and a planning mindset. And what you could do with a wholesale business like that, especially when we developed long-term relationships with clients, you knew the whole month's production, basically, give or take some standalone orders. So you could control your inventory, you could control your labor, all those kinds of things which are just impossible with a a day-to-day operation like a restaurant. Huh. So smart. And do you have any actual numbers for before and after in terms of profitability or anything like that? Yeah. So the business, when I joined it, there were, I'll call them two and a half locations in two different cities. What were the cities? They were in Kansas City, Kansas, and of all places, Alexandria, Virginia. And then we opened up one in Philadelphia And then mine in Atlanta was the last one to open. So we had four production locations. When I joined the company, two of the three existing locations were losing money. The profitable location was supporting the other two. Because they were restaurants. They were restaurants with extremely small production. And we just basically turned them into production. And the Atlanta office, obviously we started from zero. And we went from zero to 400 in revenue for the first year, then we doubled it again, and then we finally got over the million dollar mark by the time I sold the business. What a smart move. And if I was a restaurant owner, I would be doing the same exact thing. Well, yeah, Fortunately, I'm not because there would be no restaurants in, that's in the right. United some, States. <laughs> some things are more difficult to transform into that packaged food than others. And in fact, I will tell you the main reason that I liked sushi as an idea was not because I'm a big sushi eater or that it was necessarily the most popular food, but it's a food that's got to be made fresh. It has to be made fresh, which is a little sad. I was always jealous of the guys that did frozen stuff um, because of our shelf life was literally just the one day, but constructed food, there's no cooking involved. All you do is the rice is is steamed, Mm. but everything else is just a construction essentially. So if you have a couple guys that are good with knives that can cut the fish correctly, 
the rest can be trained. Hmm. So those are all reasons why I really liked that business and why I chose it, even though it wasn't something that my heart was drawing me to. Now, one of the things I talk about when making the plan for the business. Well, let's talk about that. That way we're not kind of sprinkling in some stuff. We've got about five minutes left. So let's talk about your steps for scaling. So what are your tips? Okay. The first one is to think about what do you want to do? How much do you want to make? How much can you make, right? You have to ask yourself all those questions. And then what would happen if you had something that was extremely good that happened, exponential growth versus people always think about, well, what if nobody comes in the door? How can I cover, keep the lights on, cover expenses? But what happens if that customer walks in the door and they ask you for five, 10, hundred times what you've ever produced in the past. And I tell folks the same story. And it did happen in my sushi company because I was pursuing a client, the Atlanta Public Schools, in fact, to see whether they would be interested in selling sushi in, in their cafeterias and providing it to their students. And going back and forth with the head chef and then even the superintendent of schools and all that kind of stuff, tons of meetings, tons of samplings, all that kind of thing stuff. And you say, well, gee, nothing's going to come of this. And then summer before school started one year, I got a call from the chef and he said, okay, we like the idea. Can you start providing the sushi August, whatever? And I was like, oh, that's great. Sure. How much? He's like, well, we want to have two pieces of sushi at least for each student on the opening day of school. And I did the calculation pretty quickly. They basically wanted 120,000 pieces of sushi. Now, pieces aren't rolls. There are eight pieces in each roll. You do the math. But it was a staggering amount that he also wanted delivered at the same time on one day. And that was the kind of offer that you get as an entrepreneur and you think to yourself, well, geez, this could make me and or break me. So I did work it out, but it took a lot of figuring. It took a lot of explanation about the food business, about freshness and about delivery service because half my company was a logistics company by delivering the sushi. But it doesn't matter that I did get through it. That good thing was just as stressful as a bad thing. So I tell folks that you've got to think about it and you've got to war game it out and really figure, okay, how do I do this if it happens? And if it's not possible, don't go for those opportunities. Okay. So that makes sense. And it's got to be a fun exercise too, to think, what would happen if things went really well? So, okay. And also what happens if they don't? You mentioned earlier making a plan that includes running a business as it exists and how you hope it might exist, which is similar. Any other tips for scaling? Scaling is big. I think you'll find that I'm not the first person to say this, but systematize everything as much as possible. And that's where I would tell folks, especially I've worked with a few people who have, like me, have left the corporate world to go and try to either purchase a franchise or start their own business. They've got a great idea, they think. And one of the things I tell them is think about anything that you took for granted working in the corporate world is suddenly not available to you. The human resources department, for instance, how to hire people. It's a little easier now, even... When I started the company in 2010, between then and now, outsourcing is a lot easier than it used to be. But as you know, there are pitfalls that can go along with that as well. So I tell people they need to figure out where they can source people. They need to systematize things. So if they need to hire people quickly, 
they can get that person trained up quickly. It's all about creating almost that handbook of the business while you're building it. Makes sense. And then any parting thoughts that we haven't talked about that you think we should before we wrap up? I think one of the biggest things that if you're going to be an entrepreneur and you're going to start your own business, if you have a family involved, you want to get full buy-in from your family. Because without that, you're going to have a difficult time being there for the business. Because as you know, owning your own business means you're never fully off. You're never fully on vacation and you're always on call. And if they're not up for that, you might want to look into a different opportunity. I'm going back now, way back in your podcasting days, hundreds of episodes back, but I listened to an episode with Matt Rodak and he said- He's a friend of mine. Okay. He said that entrepreneurship is hard, really, really hard. And when I heard him say that, that lit up in my mind because that's what I try to tell people. I sat down last year with a friend who told me that he and his wife both wanted to quit their jobs and they were looking at half a dozen franchises to purchase and open because they wanted control of their lives. And I told them two stories. I I told them the story of how I started the sushi business. It grew. It was fantastic. But my wife practically wanted to divorce me before I sold it because I was getting calls at one in the morning when the guys ran out of avocados. So I said, you know, watch out for that because that can be a big problem. But if you talk to somebody who started a business and they didn't really notice it and then somebody bought them out for millions of dollars, they're going to give you a different opinion for sure. Yeah, they'll have recency bias. Yes. They'll just remember the end. Well, John, thank you so much for being on the show. How can Best Ever listeners learn more about what you're doing? Well, thanks a lot, Joe, for having me again. Just being able to do this podcast for so long and so consistently is super impressive. Best ever listeners can get to me at my website at verbatimfinancial.com or john.stoj at verbatimfinancial.com. I have been doing this podcast for many years, but I learn something every day that I do. I do about eight to nine interviews. I'd say I, I learn probably something on every interview, but maybe not every interview. I don't learn something. Which is my fault because ultimately everyone has something to teach us. It's my responsibility to find out what that is. But on this one, I can say I certainly learned some stuff. And I find your sushi restaurant to wholesale supplier fascinating. And it's something that we should all take a look at in our business. If our business in total is not working, then what services, what products do we have to offer within that that would be beneficial for others? And maybe we just shift the focus. So thanks so much for being on the show. Hope you have a best ever day. We'll talk to you again soon. Thanks for having me. PropStream is an all-in-one platform that gives you the tools you need to reach more leads, book more meetings, and close more deals with less work. With PropStream, you can find vacant and off-market properties, locate potential investors, or gain invaluable market insight in seconds. PropStream also features state-of-the-art marketing tools that allow you to send out direct mail postcards and ringless voicemail which will help you close more deals with less stress. Visit your7dayfreetrial.com to start your free trial and experience all the amazing features PropStream has to offer. That's your, the number seven, dayfreetrial.com. The Corporate Investor Podcast is geared towards successful corporate employees with high-income jobs looking to create a second stream of income. You'll hear from successful real estate investors on the show, 
as they describe how they got started investing while working their full-time corporate job. Listen and subscribe at thecorporateinvestor.com. That's thecorporateinvestor.com.